Amen. Thank you so much, Malia and team. Heartfelt, Christ-centered. And I also have never felt more inadequate to talk about some of the things we're going to talk about today. And uh, I will just let you know that the last 10 years of leading the journey have been the great joy of my life. But I've also gone to school. Um, I was raised in a, a pastor's home. We, we pastored churches that were pretty much exclusively white suburban or rural churches. And then as a pastor, my experience was also largely suburban. And then God laid it on our hearts to plant a church in the city of Worcester. But not just a church in the city of Worcester, but a church, and you'll, you'll see actually, um, if you were to look at our our vision statement, an ethnically diverse intergenerational church. And by God's grace, we are becoming increasingly that. And, and we're so grateful for those of you who uh, have chosen to join us and to step into that vision with us from various backgrounds and experiences and ethnicities. But it's been a learning experience for me. I, I didn't realize that would be the case. I thought God had taught me a lot about issues, and I believed I understood and knew enough things to come into this new setting and lead, and not only lead a congregation, but maybe be used by God to lead in some way in this city to bring about a greater unity within the body of Christ across our various denominational and ethnic silos. And it didn't take long as I got to know and develop some very deep friendships with people of color to realize that I didn't know what I didn't know. That there was so much to be learned before God was really going to be able to use me. And so this has been really a decade of assuming a posture of humility, teachability, compassion, and seeking to expand my circle of those that mean a great deal to me and hopefully I have come to mean a great deal too from beyond those circles that were my comfort zone for so long. And it's interesting at this stage to feel like a decade in, maybe I have some things to share. But I just want to be clear, I'm going to speak today from God's Word. It's going to be a sermon. We're going to be in Scripture but I am going to talk about the current racial issues that have once again exploded on the scene in the news. And for some of us, it has been an invasion of our assumptions of life. And for others of us in this very mixed congregation, you want to say to those of us that are shocked by this, welcome to my world. And so somewhere in the midst of that, we are looking for some way to be the people of God now. It's interesting. Paul taught last week, and I don't think he realized, of course none of us did, that he was really setting the stage for a week that had nothing to do with COVID-19. And yet his words were so true. As God's people, we need to live with expectancy, see what God is doing. And then I, I love that phrase. It has just stuck with me. Do the next right thing. That's what we're going to talk about today. What is the next right thing to do? 
I'm going to say some things for some of you that have had the same background I have had that will hit some hot buttons that some of you will be tempted just to throw me into some box because that's how we debate about issues these days. We put people in boxes and in bubbles. Somebody says a certain phrase or uses a certain word or expresses a certain idea and instantly we take that person and we put them in a box either the same box we're in or the box of our opponents. And then we impose everything we believe about what's in that box, the ideology and the opinions and the people in it, we impose that on the person that we boxed in. And then we villainize the person in that box. We have lost the ability to just look at issues from outside of our villainization and our boxing each other in. That is a great loss to our society. And as Christians, we need to be the ones that refuse to be boxed in and refuse to box each other in. And so we're going to talk about issues that different people, and I'm going to say some things that will tempt some of you to throw me into some box, one way or the other. And the only box I want to be in right now is the box of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. We are going to reframe these conversations around kingdom. And if we can do that, we can look at these issues from a perspective not that's weighted down by all the trash that we've stuck on these things from a human debate perspective, but we can look at them afresh and simply say, what would God have us do? What is God's heart in relation to this? And therefore, as a people of God, what actually can we do? And before we're done today, I'm going to say to those of you that are on the same learning curve that I am, there are things that we can do right now besides just post on Facebook. <laughs> and I've got some opinions about that too. And we'll see if we get to them. And so that's, that's what I want to encourage you to do, just to stay with me. Let's reframe, let's look at this conversation as citizens of the kingdom of God and ask ourselves, what is the next right thing to do? And so we're going to start by reminding ourselves of how we frame the church around being what we refer to two adjectives, missional and incarnational. Missional means that we accept the fact that we are not in a Christian culture, that we are called to simply love that culture into Jesus' name. We're not at war with people. We love people. Christ loves people. God is not willing for any of them to perish. Our job is to reach out with his love. We're on a mission. Incarnational means we see ourselves as the hand and feet of Jesus. We don't want to be known just for what happens inside this space. It's been interesting. Not a whole lot has happened inside these spaces for the last three months. But we don't want to be known just by what happens as we attract people here. I love this idea of incarnation being shoes on the ground, skin in the game. Think about that. That's a great working definition of what it means to be incarnational. In the same way Christ takes on skin, steps into our world, and brings redemption and salvation, we are called to do that. That's why we're in two different neighborhoods in this city. We want to have shoe leather on the ground and skin in the game to bring about the shalom peace of Jesus. Well, where do we get those ideas from? We get those ideas from Jesus. And so I'm going to take some time, first of all, and just lay once again for us, and for some of you, maybe the first time you've heard it, and for others of you, I certainly hope this is a resounding review. 
and that you can say amen to this. What we believe the gospel is in its fullness and how the ideas of social justice are not just a trendy thing that we do, but we believe they are rooted in the gospel itself. So let's start there. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He has just begun to teach. And this is often seen as Jesus' public declaration of the beginning of his ministry, which coincides with the coming of the long-awaited kingdom of God. And so we're going to begin reading at verse 14 of Luke chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. And then he went to Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, and as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And this is how Jesus declares his coming as Messiah and what his ministry and what the kingdom of God would be about. He quotes these words from the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and to recover sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying this to them. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So this is the declaration of Jesus. This is the heart of what we would refer to as Jesus' message. It involved the proclamation of the good news. That is the word evangelios. It's where we get the term evangelical, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. I'm going to reclaim the word evangelical for social justice causes for Christ today, even though it's been misused and put into one of those boxes. I'm going to talk about what evangelicals are really called to do. Those of us that believe in the gospel work of Jesus Christ and the kingdom gospel. But if we look at it, there's just a couple things I want to point out. That statement, the year of our Lord's favor, is not a calendar year. It's an epoch. It's speaking about the, the Messiah, the era of the Messiah. The time of the preaching and declaration of salvation that would be ushered in when the Messiah comes. And so when Jesus comes, he says, this has come now. And so his message, and it's very important that you see that Jesus' gospel was what we refer to as a gospel of the kingdom of God. It was an invitation to enter into the kingdom, which he would make possible through his sacrifice on the cross. But it was also a mission a gospel mission to bring the kingdom, the, benef the beneficent reign of Christ into our world. And so you look at it, if you, you could almost describe all the different aspects that as a church or as Christians ought to be part of our kingdom gospel agenda. It includes doing something about the poor, those in prison, 
those that are experiencing physical health issues, and bringing freedom to the oppressed. That's the kingdom gospel that Jesus taught. And it's what he invited us to be a part of. In Matthew chapter 16, when the disciples really get finally that full picture of who Jesus is and finally really get comfortable with declaring that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. Jesus says this important thing, and I want you to listen to it in terms of this connection of the gospel and the kingdom, the church and the kingdom, when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Some sections of Christianity believe it was Peter to whom God gave the keys. But actually that language is the church. I'm going to give the church the keys to the kingdom. So Jesus came. He ushered in the messianic age. In his work on the cross, he makes it possible for us to become part of the kingdom, and then he turns over the keys to the family business. Think about that. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So whatever this kingdom thing is, it's about making earth match heaven, and the church has the power to do it. At the end of his ministry in Matthew chapter 28, part of the Great Commission is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now we're going to pause there. When the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, when we think kingdom, we think geographically. The United Kingdom. All the different areas where the queen is honored and, and rules, right? In the biblical concept, kingdom is not so much geographical it is the act of reigning. That's what the word basileia, the Greek word for kingdom, means. It's the act of reigning. And that's exactly what Jesus is describing here. Before he gives the church their marching orders, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what Jesus began with when he talks about the coming of the kingdom of God and what he says will also be part of the church's mission and authority here on earth. At the end, he continues that theme by saying, through my death and resurrection, I have now been given, right now, full authority over everything. What he was declaring was the reign, the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God. And then based on that, he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus doubles down on this idea of the kingdom of God being a part of our gospel message and ministry to bind on earth what is, what is bound in heaven, to loose on earth what is loosed in heaven, to bring the shalom reign of God to the world around us as part of our gospel message in Matthew chapter 25 when he talks about what would characterize those who were truly his lambs. Matthew 25 I'm going to begin reading at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, 
and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. If you've seen the movie of, um, oh my gosh, children's ministry, uh, children's TV, Daniel the Tiger, help me out here. Yes, Mr. Rogers, thank you. Oh my gosh. If you've seen the movie about Mr. Rogers, there, I think there's a scene in it that is, um, that is recounted by his wife as he's on his deathbed because he was a pastor, of course, and I believe he was a follower of Jesus. But as he was laying on his deathbed, he knew he would soon stand before God. And he asked his wife, do you think I'm a sheep? <laughs> do you think I'm a sheep? It was this very passage he was talking about. The thought that he will stand and that the Lord will separate those who were truly his. Now, now we know that it's the blood of Jesus that makes us a child of God. But what Jesus is describing here, I believe, is how blood-bought children of God would live. And by their fruit, they will be known. And so what should separate out true followers of Jesus from the lookalikes, from those who are close but not close, is the following. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance in the kingdom, prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And then the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Because then he goes on and he has the opposite effect for the goats. They are cast into the lake of fire, prepared for Satan and his minions for just the opposite. They failed to live up to that. Their fruits displayed the absence of their redemption. They're being true followers of Jesus. You see, Jesus made it clear. Do you see the consistency here? And do you see how when we simply make the gospel about the, the, the shortest way to heaven when you die, we miss the fullness of it? It's beautiful. It's about redemption. So basically, if I were to, to break the gospel of the kingdom down into three aspects, because I like threes, I can remember threes, I would say the gospel of the kingdom as Jesus preached. And let me just go on. When in the book of Acts, each time the gospel is spoken of, more frequently than not, it's referred to as the good news, which is the gospel, of the kingdom. So the early Christians understood this message and they understood the connection of kingdom and gospel. And so when we look at all of that, we see that the gospel of the kingdom is about three realities. The first is redemption. 
And that's the atonement of sin accomplished by Christ Jesus through his death on the cross. And then, of course, the, the eternal life and the future resurrection that is ours through his resurrection from death itself. That's redemption. The second aspect of the gospel of the kingdom is reconciliation. We are brought into relationship with God, that relationship that mankind lost. As Paul says, we have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of sins and new birth. But the gospel of the kingdom is not complete there. It's also about restoration. And restoration is the establishing of God's authority and will over culture and creation. And that's why when Jesus taught us to pray, he starts our prayer, not as an addendum, not as an end, but he frames everything about our prayer life when he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the very first request is, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you see the connection there? Whatsoever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. This is a reminder that as citizens of the kingdom, our first prayer, and therefore our first priority, is that the rule of Christ will be extended and what is done on earth will reflect what is done in heaven. I think you see how important this is and why we're going where we're going. That is what evangelicalism is supposed to be about and was about until the term has been in recent decades hijacked by a particular political ideology and concept and, and even a... a, 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 a an incomplete understanding of the gospel. That that phrase has been lost. In fact, it's been villainized. But actually, my hope is that as a listener, you will understand that that does not represent who we are. And and if you're listening and, and you're hearing me use the word evangelical, please don't box me in. Hear what I'm saying. Because the fact is, evangelicalism in its origins which is in Scripture and in the historical faith, is about the gospel of the kingdom. Evangelicalism in America really takes its roots back to the Great Awakening. And in particular, the Second Great Awakening, not the Great Awakening of the 1700s, but the, great, the Second Great Awakening of the early 1800s when slavery was still alive and well. And preachers like Charles Finney began to preach in such a way that a great quickening uh, in the American culture occurred and many, many turned to Jesus Christ. And it's during that era, and this is the thing I want you to understand, that those great awakening preachers of the second great awakening had a concept of the gospel that included the very things we're talking about. It was William Wilberforce, who had been moved by God through that second great awakening in the United Kingdom that was the primary driving force to bring about an end to slavery in the United Kingdom long before the United States got around to it. It was that form 
They always saw social justice as a part of gospel work. Let me give you a quote. This is Jonathan Blanchard in 1839. He was the founder of Wheaton College. Talk about a bastion for evangelicalism. And he was also one of the great preachers of the Second Great Awakening. He says, every true minister of Christ is a universal reformer whose business it is, so far as possible, to reform all the evils which press in on human concern. That's Wheaton College's history. You see, that's the history of evangelicalism. What came out of the Second Great Awakening was a movement known as the Benevolent Empire. You can look it up. And it was a great network of volunteer societies designed to attack social problems, including slavery, sex trafficking, addiction, world peace, women's rights, prison reform, education, the humane treatment of animals. The SPCA came out of the Second Great Awakening and was started by evangelicals. Think about this. It, the, this is our true heritage. Let me ask you a question. How did we get so far away from it? Well, partly it's how history played out. Because it was in the 1800s, the late 1800s and the early part of the 1900s that a movement invaded much of Christianity, in particular mainline Christianity, where the message of redemption through the cross uh, was largely done away with. Some d did away with it altogether in favor of more of a universal idea. We're all God's children. We're all good enough. We don't need to confess sin. We don't really need personal conversion and transformation. And so because they did away with the redemptive, the reconciliation aspect of the gospel, what they were left with, if they were going to be a church, was social justice. And so that became, for those that still held to the historic gospel, what we came to refer to as the social gospel. And when we said that, we meant it in a very negative way. Because to us, they had abandoned the heart of the gospel, which is the message that men and women can find reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, and forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and through personal new birth. Because that was gone, we saw social justice. Anytime you, you heard social justice, well, that's, that's a bad thing. And what was left for those who believed in the historic faith, theological orthodoxy, was to double down on the message of the cross. And so what happened was there was a divide between those who progressed away from the preaching gospel in mainline Christianity and those new movements and historic Christianity, uh, historic denominations that maintained the preaching of the gospel and the net effect was the gospel was split. I grew up in that tradition where for us the gospel was four steps to peace with God. It was about getting your fire insurance or your anti-fire, eternal fire insurance. It was all about heaven. In fact, we were so heavenly minded, we were no earthly good. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I, I love my upbringing. I'm grateful for the commitment to Scripture and holiness and the love of my family. 
I'm very grateful for it, but one of the downsides was its isolation from culture. I don't remember the name of a single person in my graduating class in high school if they didn't attend my church. That's what you get when you preach part of a gospel and lose your heart to bring the reign and rule of Christ to people who are desperate for it. When you make it all about believe and then you can belong, you see. That wasn't Jesus' plan. It never was Jesus' plan. And I want to say to those of you that have heard different preachers, and I'll name one, John MacArthur, who I respect greatly, who's so fearful of the idea of social justice that he believes it compromises the gospel. I I want you to know it's not either or. That's a false dichotomy. It was always meant to be hand in hand. We are in no way abandoning the gospel message. But what I'm saying to you is the gospel message is empowered by the gospel mission. All right? Now that may be too heady for some of you. I don't know. May not be exactly what my introduction left you to think I was going to talk about today. But I think it's really important that you understand what we're talking about is exactly what we believe with all of our heart. God's word says we are to be about. Sadly, white Christians have historically been on the wrong side of critical issues. And then after the fact, we approve what took place. And sadly, while, while there were revivalists, white revivalists who actually played more of a role in the end of slavery in the United States than they're given credit for, while that is true, by and large, the majority of white Christianity not only did not work to end social injustice, especially racial social injustice, but actually were the propagators of it. It was Christians. It was Christians who justified the owning of human beings and somehow twisting Scripture to say that certain races had the right to be superior and exercise rule and authority over other races. It was Christians who did that. At the end of slavery, after... um, After uh, Jim Crow laws were put in place and during the era of lynching, it was Christians who went to church in the morning and in the evening lynched black men who spoke to a woman wrong or didn't cross the street and walk on the other side when a white woman was placed. One Methodist preacher was famous for saying, the problem is in the raping If black men stop raping white women, the lynching will stop. I want to suggest that some white evangelicals right now are doing the same thing with African Americans in the United States. We're putting the blame on them. It's their fault if they'd act better. See? That's the tradition, unfortunately, many of us today in the white church are following. The Southern Baptist Church finally acknowledged their role in not coming alongside African-American brothers and sisters to first free them from slavery, to then free them from Jim Crow, 
and to then come alongside the civil rights movement in the 60s in my lifetime when they were saying to black leaders like Martin Luther King Jr., now's not the right time. There's more important things for us to worry about than that. What they're saying is your plight, your suffering is not important enough for us. Wait. Controlling the narrative, you see? So finally, in 1995, to their credit, and I, I want to say the Southern Baptist today is a very different movement. I have great respect for the leadership and my friends, and in particular, a shout-out to Terry Dorsett, who's leading the Northeast Baptist Convention in a wonderful way that unites people of all ethnicities and backgrounds in the kingdom of God. I just want to be really clear about what I'm saying. But in 1995, they were finally able to pass a resolution to apologize and acknowledge their role. And that was 150 years after the end of slavery. See? Here's the thing, people. We're following that trend right now. We're finding ways to minimize what's going on, to find excuses for it, to blame the victims, to pretend it's not really happening. And we're still on the wrong side of history. <laughs> for instance, some of you have heard and would even put forth the idea that in America, twice as many white people are killed as black people by police. And actually, that's a true statement. But some would use it to say it's not really an issue of racism, it's an issue of police brutality. Well, we have a police brutality issue in some places. But here's how facts like that can distort reality. African Americans only make up 10% of the national population. When you take out police killing of people who had weapons and just talk about police killing of unarmed people, actually, it's about the same percentage. It's very close between whites and blacks. But here's the problem. Only 10% of our population is African American. And so what that statistic means is that black men are five times more likely, unarmed black men, to be killed by police. You see, we can all find statistics that'll let us stay where we are and be comfortable. But it's time for us to actually look at this from a kingdom perspective and admit we have a problem in our society. Here's the truth, people. Every culture suppresses people. Every political system suppresses people because every system that is man-made is rooted out of our fallen humanity. What is it that keeps some of us from just saying, yeah, there's a problem? Have we so associated our Christianity with our idea of America that we can't separate that? I'm going to say some things I hadn't planned to say. I've come to realize and I guess I began realizing this about eight years ago when I attended Movement Day in New York City. Christian leaders of all ilk coming together to talk about what God was doing, especially in New York, but then around, around the world. And I sat in a racial reconciliation seminar just to sit and learn. And it was there I really had to come to terms with the fact that in my upbringing, I was taught a history of the United States that was significantly edited, that was from the perspective of white Europeans. And I, I'm grateful for my upbringing. 
We're not all, white Europe is not all evil. But when you're the dominant group, you get to win over the narrative. And I realized that all of those that resisted our expansion as though that was the divine right of America, somehow America is the, the promised land, it's equivalent to the kingdom of God, it's God's country, although America never shows up anywhere in prophecy and in the Bible. Somehow all that got so convoluted that anybody who was here before us who fought against losing their homeland was seen as the villains that we heroically defeated. You see, that, that's the history I learned. It's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. And if we're going to actually be God's kingdom people, we need to go deeper than that. We need to recognize that there are things you don't know that you don't know because you just haven't been taught. And then we need to act on what God is teaching us in a way that says, Lord, in this case, your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask those of you that are struggling with what I'm saying right now. What are you so afraid of? What are you thinking you're going to lose personally by saying, we have an issue here. And as Christians, that creates a mandate for us to stand up and to bring liberty to the oppressed to free on earth what is free in heaven. That's what I believe God's called us to. Now, I've talked about all of this, and I want to just take some time and offer some thoughts as to what we can do. I think that by far, if you're part of the Journey Community Church, I am hopeful, and I earnestly believe that most of you are saying, yes, Tom, we're there. Some of you who are listening in, um, if you've stayed with me, even though some of the things I've shared may have been very uncomfortable for you, I hope maybe you're willing to go a little step further out of what you think you know and learn what you don't know that you don't know and maybe reorient yourself around God's heart for the world and for those that are being oppressed right now. I I'm hoping that's true. But I want to tell you, we can do more than post on Facebook. <laughs> and we ought to do more. One of the things that is both probably a source of comfort to our, our, our black brothers and sisters is that white Christians are speaking up. But here's the problem with Facebook. When we post on Facebook, we're actually kind of creating our own false narrative. We're letting people see us in the way we want them to see us. So Facebook is not the place for you to think you're doing your part by posting your alignment with those that are hurting right now. I don't think it's wrong that we're doing it. But I think it would be even more hurtful if that's all that we do. But if you are going to post, and I'm grateful that some of you are, can I offer some thoughts from things I'm learning and have learned? First of all, Never say you understand what our black brothers and sisters are going through. You don't. Never try to bring up an experience you had as a way of trying to say to them, so I kind of know what you're going through. You don't. You have not lived a life 
of being a part of this culture that has been systematically and continually suppressed by systems and by people's assumption and prejudice of them. You just don't. I have suffered by other people getting opportunities that I think were mine. You don't understand. It is not the same. You don't know what you don't know. Don't post in a way that has as its secondary goal to prove somehow your wokeness. Post in a way that shows your compassion and your love and your willingness to learn and to come alongside. But let's put away with that. Because frankly, whatever you post on Facebook, you're not going to change the world through that. And so let me offer some thoughts from my own lessons in this and the friendships, both pastors in the city that I've learned a great deal from and come to respect and, and other friends in this church and out who have been willing to let me into their lives and to let me learn from them. And let me just offer some real tangible things because I think there are people out there that say, I really want to do something. I, I want to be a part of the change. And so I've put some thoughts together. Later on, I'm going to post an article from a, a black youth pastor who, who posted a list of things. And some of the things I'm going to share with you are inspired by that. But some of these are my own thoughts. And, and once again, I, I may not get this right. I'm, everything I'm going to say is not going to be right here. But all these things are directed so that we will be in the right together. And so first, adopt a posture of humility, teachability, and compassion. I'm just going to tell you, we are so used to setting the stage and determining the rules for the conversation, we don't even realize that we're doing it. It's time for us, white Christians, to get humble, to not rush in as white saviors. You know that movie about the women, the, the African-American women who were the computers of the early uh, NASA launches? Beautiful, powerful story. Did you know the figure of the white manager that is played by Kevin Costner who finally goes in and has this moment of great revelation where he tears down the signs that say black bathroom and he tears down the other signs and says we all pee the same color and therefore the heroine gets to start using the, the woman's bathroom in the main area. You know he's not real. <laughs> you know that didn't happen? She just actually just started using the bathroom. Just like sitting at the front of the bus. We're so used to, we're so attracted to white saviors. It's time for us to humble ourselves and listen and learn. Second, educate yourself. One of the things that some of my friends have made very clear to me is that I threaten their, my friendship with them when I ask them to teach me about my ignorance. Now it's one thing for you to say, tell me your story. And I've been very blessed by those African-American friends who have gifted me with their experience. It has really opened me. It has humbled me. It has shown me my inadequacy. But that's different than asking them to teach us about history, about the truth of things that 
we can all just find out if we're willing to. We live in a world where we're in echo chambers now. Whatever you search on Facebook or on Google, there are algorithms that will just keep feeding you that. So if you search one idea about race issues, all you're going to see is that information over and it will be reinforced and you will stay ignorant. Essentially what I'm saying is the way we get our information today reinforces our bubbles in our boxes. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to bust out of that, get out of your comfort zone, learn from people who have a different experience and perspective, even if they say angry things, even if they say things that you're not sure you agree with. You're not going to grow if you don't take it upon yourself to actually learn what you have never been taught. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. I know a lot, but there's more I don't know. 64 years old, <laughs> I'm finally getting that. I invite you to, into it a lot sooner than I did. And I want to recommend three books for you to read that have really transformed our church staff and our church council. And they will be very helpful to you. The first book is called The Myth of Equality. It's an university press book, an amazingly reputable Christian publishing house, written by a white Christian named Ken Witzma that is meant to address people like me and just lovingly fill in the gaps of the history that we didn't get right up till present day to help us understand what our black and brown brothers and sisters are saying when they talk about systemic racism. You will only come to understand it if you see the full and consistent picture right up till today. All right? The second book is by John Perkins, an amazing, an amazing black preacher and prophet who came up through the civil rights movement and is a great man of peace today to the church. He's in his final years of life here on earth. And one of his most recent books is called One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love. I had the privilege of seeing John Perkins when I was on sabbatical down at Transformation Church, Irwin Gray's uh, ethnically diverse intergenerational church down there that God's really blessing. John Perkins will speak to your heart and give you hope. And then the third is the book, The Woke Church, by Eric Mason. Eric Mason, if you follow my Facebook, is the Christian leader who posted uh, a lament, just a live lament, after George, George Floyd's death. And he's a man of God, a great theologian, and voice for the whole church, but right now is being used by God to speak for our black brothers and sisters. And so I strongly encourage you. In fact, I dare you to read those books. And if you're already dismissing the thought of it, can I just ask you why that is? What's going on in you that you've already decided you're not going to give that a chance? And what does that say about your fears more than your convictions? <laughs> I didn't plan to say that, but there it is. Number three. Reach out, listen to, and show compassion to your friends of color. And when you hear their stories, just love it. Love on them. Don't try to minimize it. Don't try to put it in perspective. Don't try to ever say, I know what you're going through. This happened to me. Just listen and love and learn and appreciate who they are considering the life and the experiences that they've had. If you don't have 
an African-American friend or friends who counts you as a confidant, who would be someone you would go to, who you weep with, and who you rejoice with as the brother or sister in Christ, chances are you shouldn't be posting your opinion about this. Just saying. You're posting ideologically, not experientially. Four, lament. Vitalina and I were shocked when a friend of ours, when we talked about the sadness that we experienced over Ahmed Aubrey and the killing and how we were just weeping and we were calling other Christians to weep. We were just shocked that this godly Christian woman said, why should I weep? I haven't done anything wrong. Why can't we all just get along, pretend none of this has ever happened? If we just did that, wouldn't we be okay? I, I was shocked. And, and unfortunately, I, I realized that's out there in Christian circles. The reason why we lament isn't because we personally are guilty of all of the sin. We lament because we are God's people. And we are called to lament for the injustices. It's that simple. And in the lamenting, we find purpose and mission to bring about change. I could preach on each of these points, but I'll go through the rest quickly so we can end today. Five, teach your white friends what you're learning. When I've made comments in the church about things I'm learning, I've always felt inadequate. And I've always been encouraged by my black friends in the congregation that have said to me, only you could have said that. We would never have been heard. Recently, I connected with one of my pastor brothers in the city and just said, I'm praying for you. And he wrote back and said, prayers are appreciated, but we need white leaders to use their influence to speak out. And it kind of confirmed for me that it's time for me to stop learning. Well, to keep learning. I'm still learning. I'll always be learning about this. But to start sharing what I know as well. And so we can all do that. We can help others. And that leads us to six. Teach your children to break the cycle. That somehow we keep repeating over and over again. Even if we think, my generation was the hippie generation, the peace and groovy love where everybody was fine. And it's my generation that's resisting the most. Uh, in terms of this change. Uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. Let's teach the next generation to do better than us. Seven, get involved in movements that promote racial equality and justice. Join. We need to be a part of this. We need to be willing to sit back and follow others. Minority leaders who know the path. We need to be willing to trust that they're the ones that know the path. We're going to follow them and we're going to bring what we have and our resources and our influence and our power to bear on bringing about change. Get involved in some way. Will it trouble you at times? Yeah. Will you, will you read angry things and feel accused? Probably. But let that be growth to you. Let God bring to bear in your heart what's true and what isn't. Let go of. Because when we're involved with people that have different experiences than ours, we're always going to be uncomfortable. That's, that's part of the growth experience. Get over it. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, get over it. I want to talk about one thing that we could all do right now, and I'm hoping as many of the church family as feel safe in the era of COVID-19 will be able to do this. 
Our brothers and sisters are looking for us to do more than talk about our outrage. They're looking for us to show up. And so we have an opportunity tomorrow evening at 6 o'clock to participate in a peaceful demonstration and rally at City Hall in Worcester in honor of George Floyd. And I've already agreed to go. You've seen me post it. And I want to challenge us to show up in force as members of the Journey Community Church. And that's all we're going to do. We're going to show up in love. We're going to listen. We're going to join in and we're going to be hearing and listening to see what God has to say to us about what role we should play in this. So I hope you hear my heart. I, I hope you hear me say that I want the Journey Community Church to be on the right side of this. I want us to be about Christ's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom that not only seeks to get people fit for heaven, but makes the earth fit for the kingdom, fit for Jesus, and seeks to bring liberty to the oppressed. You'll notice the Bible never argues the presence of the oppressed in any culture. It just calls us to do something about it. And that's what I'm calling you to do. I think five or six years ago, I'd have been so nervous about saying this, because in the past at the journey, as we were kind of vetting out who we were as a church, even to mention things like my advantage that I grew up with because of who I am, I lost white people from this church. Just to mention these things, I lost white people. When Trump was elected president, I lost black people because I didn't make a political statement about him. <laughs> We're called to better than that. And if we're going to be a church that looks like heaven, we need to hear each other, love each other, weep with each other, and work for the good in each other's lives. And then together, show the world how it should be. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Martin Luther King Jr. said, It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that is pretty important too. That's bringing the kingdom of God to earth. So I'm just going to challenge you. We're going to be praying about what God wants us to do about this. We are not going away. It is not going away. And we're going to figure out how to be God's people together in a way that transforms lives for heaven and brings God's shalom peace and his kingdom to earth. All right? Thank you for listening. I, I know I went long today. Uh, I felt all these things were important, and I'm grateful for you sticking in, if you in fact did. Let me pray as the worship team comes up and we'll close. Father, I, I thank you for these seasons none of us would choose them many of us are incredibly uncomfortable with coming to the reality of this certainly things i've said have brought up all sorts of yeah buts and what ifs but i believe at the heart of all that i've said your word has spoken to us we are to be people who bring god's kingdom to earth it is part of the gospel mission and if we are not about it, if we are not reaching out to the poor and to those in prison 
and, to the, and if we are not bringing liberty to the oppressed, we are not a gospel people. And Father, we want to be about what you are about. And so teach us, Father. We're humbled. We're listening. Grow our compassion. And then move us out together in Jesus' name. Amen.